Good morning. Surprised to see so many of you guys here. Um, so we're talking about money, and people don't like pastors telling them what to do with their money. So it is encouraging. Um, I should know better. You know, you guys, I'm, I'm very blessed to pastor a church where people don't mind hearing and talking about hard things. So I'm glad that you're here this morning as I continue to tell you what to do with your money. Um, look, this is where we ended off last week or sort of towards the end. And I want to give you a big picture because what we're talking about is not you putting money into an offering basket that comes by every Sunday. Shalom. Shalom. Shalom is, uh, is the context behind the scriptures, old and new. And you have to understand the concept of shalom. Shalom says that God created our world, our, 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 the world that we live in, to be an interconnected, interwoven, interdependent place. That means there's a, a connectedness to us and God, us and each other, and us to the world that's very powerful and profound. God created the universe in such a way that we would be rightly related to God, rightly related to each other, and rightly related to creation. And the end result is shalom, which is universal flourishing. There's justice, there's love, there's peace. Shalom. Now here's what sin did, though. Sin enters the world, and essentially, if you want to look at the ultimate effect of sin, sin basically disintegrates shalom. Sin comes and disintegrates our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with creation. There's disintegration. And so what God created to be this interdependent, interwoven place, all of a sudden now there's disintegration. There's disintegration economically, communally, in every way. Now if you go, well, Peter, how does that work? And I shared some statistics last week, and uh, I, you know, I'm going to throw out a lot of numbers just to kind of have us be informed, you know. I talked about how 1.3 billion people live in absolute poverty. That's a do- less than a dollar a day. Three billion people in the world live on less than two dollars a day. Seventy million people are on the threshold of starvation every day. 34,000 children die every day of hunger and preventable diseases. 400 million people consume less than the minimum critical diet. Half of the children of the absolute poor don't live to be five years old. So we go, wow, that's really sad. That's really tragic. Here is the solidarity, the interconnectedness of how your behavior, my behavior, our actions profoundly impact the rest of the world. The richest fifth of the world's people That's 20% of the entire world's population consumes 45% of the world's meat and fish. The poorest fifth consume 5% of the entire meat and fish in the world. The richest fifth, 20%, consume 58% of total energy. The poorest fifth consume less than 4% of the total energy. Are you seeing the correlation? Okay, let me keep going. The richest fifth have 74% of all the telephone lines in the world. The richest fifth, 74%. The poorest fifth, 1.5%. The richest fifth use 84% of all the paper in the world. The poorest 20% use over just 1%. The richest fifth owns 87% of the world's vehicles. The poorest fifth of the entire world's population owns less than 1% of the vehicles. Our behavior and our actions have profound implications for the rest of the world. Why? We are interconnected. We are interwoven. There is a solidarity to us. And even in our pop culture, we talk about six degrees of separation. That's a very biblical notion if you think about it. That means, the Bible goes further, that the people out there, they're your flesh and your blood, Isaiah 58. You have a connectedness to the people out in the world that you may not even be aware of. That your, your behavior and our actions have rippling applications for the rest of the world. I love this quote by Scott Bessenecker. Is that how you pronounce his name, Sandra? Quest for Hope in Slum Community. He says, God's original design did not include a world where few of the earth's residents live in luxury, struggling to decide how many cars they should own. And I add a little parenthesis. What car I should buy. 
The fact that you have a choice on what car you want to buy, you are filthy rich. While millions live in abject poverty, struggling to decide whether or not to sell their daughter into sex industry in order for the rest of the family to survive. Listen. It's not about putting money into an offering basket. This is about how you and I spend our money having application or implications for the rest of the world. Do you understand that? This is why God has the audacity to say in Malachi 3 that when you are stingy with your money, when you hoard your money, when you use your money just on yourself, he says you are plundering, you are pillaging, you are raping my creation. To which you go, how the heck are we doing that? When you and I hoard it and don't use it generously, invest it, plow it back into the larger human community, the end result, just us being passive, just us being stingy, the end result is that there's disintegration to the world out there. So when we use our resources and plow back generously, what does Shalom look like? Shalom says that... uh, a billion people get to drink clean water. What does shalom look like? Shalom says that uh, children don't die before the age of five because they have accessible, basic medical care that you and I take for granted. What does it look like locally? Shalom. Shalom locally means that there's affordable housing. And people could live in nicer homes and nicer neighborhoods. It means that our schools are better, not just for kids in Lincoln Park or Wilmette, but schools are better for everyone. It means that we care for the homeless and the marginalized. Shalom. That's what this is about. That's what this is about. Our behavior, our our lifestyle has ramifications that ripple the rest of the world. Now, where we're going today, in order to understand, you guys, all this stuff about stewardship resources, you got to understand that the Bible essentially talks about world history in four stages. There's creation, then there's fall into sin, there's redemption through Jesus, and then restoration of the new heavens and the new earth. That means that regardless of what the topic is that we're talking about, we have to understand, number one, that it was created by God, good in and of itself, blessed. But sin enters the world, and as a result, whatever that thing is, it's broken now. It's marred. It's not, it's not, it's not working the way it's intended. Then Jesus comes, and through his life, death, and resurrection, he redeems it. And at the end, there's new heavens and new earth. The Bible sees everything in that present reality. So when we're going to look at money, and as we're looking at money, God gives resources and material wealth, and it's good. It's good in and of itself. It's not evil. Those of you making lots of money, you're not evil. Those of you with lots of resources, the money itself is not evil. It can be used for incredible good and justice and love. But because of sin, the way we approach money, the way we use money has been marred. But God is in the process of redeeming it in such a way that money can be used for incredible renewal and redemption in the world. Last week we talked about how God created all things and he owns all things. And we relate to our money and our finances and everything we have as a steward. It's not ours, it's God's. And that's an incredible principle we need to embrace. And this week, what we're going to talk about is money and possessions has been affected by sin like everything else. And how we approach it has profound implications for how you and I approach our lives. Whether we contribute and work towards shalom or towards further disintegration. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Starting in verse 1, we're going to read chunks of Matthew 6. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. 
If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have reached their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jump down to verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life not more important than food and body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or sow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not so much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, then can add a single hour to this life? Um, This is God's word. I said last week that I can't talk about money as much as Jesus did because if I did, none of you would show up. Jesus talked about money every 25% of the time in his parables. If I talked about it that much, that means that every three, four months we're doing an entire month sermon series on stewardship. I just might do that actually. Here's the reason why Jesus did that because he was saying, and if you're not a Christian here, by the way, this is so applicable for you. Jesus is literally saying, money is very much related to your relationship with me. You are fooling yourself if you think money can be compartmentalized over here and you could have a great vibrant relationship with me without it. He's saying that a disciple of Jesus has huge ramifications of how you handle your money. If you're not a Christian, let me tell you something. Jesus doesn't want your money. If you're not a Christian, I don't want your money. Our church is not asking for your money. Let me make it very, very clear. Jesus is asking for something from you, but it's not your money. Okay? So hear, hear me clearly. We're not asking for money if you're not a Christian. Okay? But Jesus talked about it often for you too, non-Christian, because he was saying, if you want to know what it's like to follow me, if you want to know what it's like to have a vibrant relationship with me, you better listen to what I say about money. Okay? so that you could decide whether this is worth it or not. And then he says, are you paying attention? In Matthew chapter 6, I think he gets to the heart of what that is. And in Matthew chapter 6, he talks about why our relationship with our money is so intimately tied to our relationship with Jesus. Here's the first point that we get from Matthew chapter 6. He says that money is a master that demands allegiance and competition with Christ. Money is a master that demands allegiance and competition with Christ. That's sort of the the big thrust of that entire passage. When he says in verse 24, you cannot serve both God and money. And if you've been around at our church, you've heard me say this before. Jesus does not compare serving God with Satan. That's what you would expect him to do. But he says you cannot serve both God and money. He says money is something that can master you. Money is something that can control you. Money is something that could exert huge influence in your life. Money is something that you could actually serve with your hearts and with your beings. How do we serve money? Verse 21, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the most important lesson about money that Jesus talks about. You ready? And that is this. Our hearts and our hopes and our desires are very closely tied to money. Your hopes today, your desires today, your significance today, your value today, your worth today is very closely tied to your money. That's what he's talking about. Our money and our hearts always go together. Matter of fact, money is one of the best ways to identify the idols of our hearts. Money is one of the best ways to identify the idols of our hearts. What your heart most loves, what your heart most worships, what your heart most adores, what your heart most serves, all you have to do is follow that trail of where you spend your money, your credit cards, your checkbooks, your bank accounts. It's interesting in Malachi 3.10, 
God says, speaking to the Israelites, bring me the whole tithe into my storehouse, into my temple, okay? Bring the whole tithe into my storehouse. Now, what what was he talking about? Here's the thing. In temples in that culture, not just Jews, but temples for even pagan religions, in their temples they had a treasury, a treasury. It was a storehouse. And literally what this was, when people came to this temple or storehouse to worship their deity, they gave their jewels, their gold, their silver to the worship of that God. So these treasuries or these storehouses and these temples had the gold, had the silver, had the jewels that were used essentially to, for the salvation system of that deity, to serve that God, deity. And here's what God is saying. God is saying, when you come to me, bring your tithes, bring your belongings into my storehouse, into my treasury. Implication, if you are not giving it to God, you're giving it in service to some other idol and some other God and some other treasury in some other temple. There is no such thing as a non-worshipper. Today, this very minute, with your resources, your money, your wealth, either you are giving it in the service, in the treasure and storehouse of God, the creator, in service of him, or you are giving it in service of some other idol, in some other God. There is no alternative. The question is, where... And what treasury, storehouse, is your money going into? Practical? Let me make it very practical. If you find that incredibly difficult to be generous with your money and give enormously to God's causes, and yet find it unbelievably easy to spend money on clothes, your wardrobe is your temple. Your wardrobe is a treasury of your temple. And your money, regardless of what you say, is going into the worship of the God of personal appearance, of physical attraction, of validation and significance from what people say about me and how I look. If you find it incredibly difficult to give radically to God's causes but find it so easy to spend money on your apartment, furniture, furnishing it, and other things, your apartment and your house is the real temple And you're looking to that as the real source of your significance and value to say, look at me, look how important I am, look how significant I am, look where I live. Your money is going into some treasury, some storehouse, in service of some God. And the question is, what is it? It's effortless to spend money on that which is your God. Do you know what we worship in America? Let me tell you where our money, which storehouse and our temple, again, more statistics, we spend about $33 billion in weight loss products and services every year. We spend another $82 billion, $82 billion buying clothes. And we spend about $22 billion in cosmetic products. We live in a country where our bodies are our temples and we are worshiping the God of, look how I look. Regardless, we live in a culture that's obsessed with physical beauty. We live in a culture that's obsessed with physical attraction. And we have completely wholeheartedly bought into this. And we spend money incredibly easily into that so that somebody could look at us and say, wow. We spend money that we don't have buying things that we don't need to impress people that we don't even like. That's us. We spend over $110 billion each year on fast food. We live in a culture where our gods are our stomachs. We spend over $100 billion each year on consumer electronics. You don't think we worship gods? Walk into a typical home where you will see the furniture nicely lined up facing the God, otherwise known as HDTV and surround sound system, bowing down to the idol of entertainment. 
We spend over $200 billion each year consuming sporting events. We live in a culture where we spend billions of dollars resurrecting huge temples, I'm sorry, sporting coliseums, worshiping the idols, I'm sorry, professional athletes as gods. Every Sunday, today, we have millions of worshipers throughout this country bowing down in huge temples, billions of dollars. Can I do a couple more? We spend more than $600 billion on new and used cars. Now, see, I'm not going to go there because I know this is a sensitive subject for some of us. But let me just say this. Well, actually, I'll talk about it a little bit later. Okay. Americans spend $4.9 billion, another $12 billion on video rentals. We spent $39 billion last year on pet food. Just to give you a perspective of $39 billion, that is more than the gross national product of 162 different countries in the world. Do you see how powerful, do you see, do you see what Jesus is saying? See, you and I look at, you know, third cultures and go, oh, we're not primitive, we don't have wood and stone, and we bow, we bow down every day. To worship gods. And our money just easily flows into supporting the worship of these gods. Are you uncomfortable yet? Okay, well, you're going to be, you know. (laughs) We're controlled by money because it gets us what our heart loves. Do you get that? We are controlled by money. The reason why Jesus can't serve both God and money is because money gets us what our heart adores, what our hearts worship, what our hearts value to find significance. That's why common sense is thrown out the window when it comes to money. We act irrationally. It's about idolatry. It's about worship. As long as we find our significance and our value, our worth in anything and everything, but the only one that can give you that, you and I will spend and spend and spend and spend. Pouring our money into the storehouse. Pouring our money into the treasury. In service of other guys and idols. How are you doing? Do you realize that our money is so intimately tied to what our hearts most intensely want? Think about yourself today. What is it that you intensely want? Does money play a factor in that? Jesus actually took time to identify some of these things, these idols, if you will. Here's one. In verse 2, he says, when you give to the needy, don't be honored by, don't do it in order to be honored by men. Here's an idol in which we spend our money in order to support. It's called a status idol. Status idol. We find our significance and our worth in status. So what do we do? We spend an enormous amount of money to live in certain neighborhood, to get into certain social circles, and to, and to be around certain people. You know what else this will cause us to do? And I'll talk about this more later, especially you working professionals. Status idol will cause us to get jobs that we don't even like. Work hours that we don't even want to work with people that we don't even enjoy. Why? Just so that we could support a lifestyle. You're sitting here today. That's you. You're miserable at your job. You hate it. And if somebody asks you, well, why? You say, well, I got to pay for that Mercedes I just bought. Well, I got to pay for, you know, that $400,000 condo I just bought. And you're enslaved. You're enslaved to the status idol. I ask you this all the time. Why do you want that job? Why, why, why are you there? Why do you want to go to that grad school? Why? Why do you want to get that degree? driven by the status idol. The fact that we can live in certain places, go to certain restaurants, drive certain, certain cars, wear certain clothes. You know what it does? This is why it's so, so just, 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 it's because we actually feel significant and important. We actually kind of go, hey, I feel pretty good. And you know what's even more messed up? When you're doing better socioeconomically than somebody, you don't, just, you don't just say, I'm better than you socioeconomically. You literally say to yourself, I'm better than you. You don't see that happening to yourself. 
If you're high caliber socioeconomically, you don't just go, oh, I'm higher caliber socioeconomically. You literally just go, I'm just higher caliber than you. That's the deceit of money. See, if you're not a Christian here today, do you see why Jesus talked about money so much? I mean, you can't get around this. You can't, you can't get around this. Here's, a, here's another idol that Jesus uh, talked about. At verse 3, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand doing. This is the idol of approval. Now, here's the screwed up thing about this. Some of you are incredibly generous. Some of you give a ton of money. But the reason why it's an idol in your life is because internally you're very proud. It makes you feel significant and important. How do you know if you're driven by this? How do you respond when people don't thank you? How do you respond when people don't show approval and and appreciation? When somebody doesn't come there and go, thank you. How do you respond? How do you respond when they don't respond to you like the way you wanted them to? Are you doing it for yourself or are you doing it for them? Hmm? By the way, churches lots of times have people that are driven by this idolatry, and what they do is they give a lot of money and so they try and control the church and leadership and division so on and so forth. Anybody grew up in churches like that? Well, you know the thing is, we do that too. Here's a last idol. So do not worry. And Jesus goes on this long talk. Here's the other idol that drives us. It's the idol of security and certainty. Some people use money for significance and approval. Some of us use it to control our circumstances. It's the idol of security. See, you're the person that sat there when I talked about the $40,000 car and the apartment. You sat there and go, that's right, those sinners. (laughs) You know, you're the one that sat there and said, man, I've worn these same shoes for like eight years. But here's what you're doing. You're stingy. You're not generous. And the reason is because you hoard and hoard and hoard. Why? Because it's your security. It's what makes you feel like you have control in an uncontrollable world. And you're saying to yourself, well, what if a rainy day comes and I need to? And so you hoard and you don't give generously. And you completely forget about the fact that the reason why you have what you can hoard is because God provided for you in the first place. You know what? This is very personal. I know. I talked to a, a friend of mine, a sister in our church, who came up. She's Chinese-American. And this is a story for many of us, right, Asians especially? You know, she said, Peter, it's so hard when you talk about the security thing. And she was weeping. I said, why? And she said, because my parents don't have anything. My parents didn't make wise decisions. My parents were the typical immigrant story. And they're not going to be well off. And I am worried about them and what's going to happen to them. And she said, I don't want to wind up like that. That's why I can't give because I'm scared. Man, my heart just broke. My heart goes after her. And I said, I understand. Which one of us wouldn't want to have enough finances to be secure? But here's the end. Here's the thing you got to realize. Do you trust God? Do you trust that the God who, who, who keeps and cares for the birds and the lilies in the field looks at you and says, do you not realize how valuable you are to me? And just as I've cared for you up until now, that I will continue to care for you. And you know what else you have to realize? Jesus just flat out says, invest in things where, where, where it won't be stolen, that they, thieves won't be able to break in and steal. Do you know what he was saying? It doesn't matter how much money you have. Your money will not stop broken hearts. It doesn't matter how much you hoard. It will not stop cancer. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It will not stop unexpected illnesses. The various things that we put our security in and just try and find validation. And Jesus says, none of those things are secure. Just as money can't buy you happiness, money can't buy you security. Come on, you know that. You know that. I know that. Where is your money going to? In service of which idol, which God? The second turn principle that Jesus talks about here in Matthew 6 is this, that the more money you have, the harder it will be to make spiritual progress. The more money you have, the harder it will be to make spiritual progress. Now, I'm not picking on wealthy people here. As I mentioned before, as I mentioned before, okay, last week, first of all, we're all wealthy. Amen? <laughs> you don't believe me. 
Go, go back and listen to last week. I, I did, uh, anyway, uh, we're all extremely wealthy compared to the rest of the world. But here's what Jesus is saying. In Matthew 6, verse 22, and this verse has always sort of confounded me, but then I, 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 you know, I realized what Jesus is saying. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now, what is he saying? Listen to this. Look up. Everybody look up here. This room is well lit, right? So if your eyes are good or your eyes are working, you'll be able to, by the light, walk around, not run into aisles, run into people, so on and so forth. Okay? So there's a sense in which if your eyes are good, the light works for you, and your whole body is functioning the way it's supposed to as you get around. But if your eyes are bad, your eyes are dark, as Jesus says. It doesn't matter how much light there is. Your whole body is in darkness. Your whole body, your entire being, running into things, running into people. What's Jesus saying? He made a little bit more clear in Luke chapter 12, verse 14, when he says, Watch out for all kinds of greed. You've heard me before. I make fun of that, right? Jesus never said, watch out for all kinds of adultery. Why? Because you know when you're committing adultery. (laughs) Right? You don't sit there and go, oh, my gosh. (laughs) You're not my wife? (laughs) What are you doing here? Let me just get to the practical principles. You ready, you guys? How does money blind us? Jesus says money blinds you, first of all. Money blinds you to the fact that we're, in actuality, greedy and materialistic. Greed blinds us to greed. Materialism blinds us to materialism. Do you know that in all of my years of pastoring a new community with wealthy people and everybody in between, not a single person has walked into my office, tears in their eyes. I, I just can't live with myself anymore. I, I feel just so guilty. I got to unload this. I have to unload this. So I said, what's wrong? What's wrong? I have a seat. What? I, I, just, I, I just am too greedy. I have never yet to this day have somebody come in and confess their sin of materialism. Do you know why? Here's the sin of materialism and its ability to blind us. Nobody thinks they're greedy. You're sitting there this morning and you're saying, this doesn't apply to me. Why is he talking about this? I'm not greedy. I'm not materialistic. The very symptom that you are greedy and materialistic is the fact that you don't think that you're greedy and you're materialistic. That's what Jesus is saying. How do you know you're greedy materialistic? You don't think it's your problem. You don't think you have an issue with it. That's how you know. And here's the reason why we do that. Because immediately when I talk about materialism, we immediately think of that one person that's richer than us and more extravagant than us. Is it not true, right? Immediately our minds go to that one person, you know. And for some of us, we like go, Donald Trump, he is greedy. He's <laughs> And of course, when you look at him, we're all looking at ourselves going, I'm poor. He's greedy. He's the The problem with this sin of materialism is that you and I compare ourselves to people that are way better off than us, and we don't think it's an issue for us. We don't think it's a problem for us. Now, so here's the principle. If the Bible says we are greedy, we are materialistic, and the Bible says we're totally blind to it, the way that you can work this out in your life is make it a given that you are greedy. Go from the assumption that you are already materialistic. I don't care if you don't think you are or not. Work from that assumption. That's what Jesus is saying. If you want to know how to go about approaching things in the right way, first and foremost, say to myself, it is a given that I'm materialistic. It is a given that I'm greedy. Now what? How else does money blind us? I mentioned this. Materialism or money has the power to cause you to choose a job, not because you love it or are good at it or helps people but it just helps you make a lot of money. You know, here's the thing. A job that pays well, adrenaline itself will get you going for about five years, you know? Being able to buy stuff. But after about five years, I notice a pattern. After about five years, you just go, I'm just so tired. And I'm real honest, people. I just am so empty. Real honest, people. 
Worshiping this false idol is just killing me. Materialism, though, has also the ability to blind you, not just about what job you choose, but the conduct of your job. Okay, everybody, look up here. You may not hear this anywhere else. You might as well hear it here. Do you know that materialism greed has the ability to blind you to the, to the conduct of your job? Here's what I mean. Some of us work for companies where they're about basically in the bottom line profits and they're doing harm to the environment, doing harm to communities and neighborhoods. Causing injustice. And here's the thing. People in that company, they're not going, we are doing harm to the environment. They're not. That's not how greed works. That's not how materialism works. What are they doing? You know what they do? You know what they do? They just turn the other way. You know what you do? You You never ask. You never ask the hard question of, how is my company making this money? You never ask the question of, how is this impacting the community and the neighborhoods in? Hmm. How is the money that I'm being paid by this company actually doing good or harm to the world and the community that we live in? We never go there. You know why? Money and greed has blinded you. Last one. This is really hard. Materialism greed has the power to blind us about our lifestyle. Oh, man. Church, can we get real? Can we get real? Okay. Some of us are literally in sin. (gasps) He said that word. Yeah, I said that word. Because we are living at the upper limits of our lifestyle. You know what materialism has done? You know how greed has blinded you? You never ask the question of, do I need to spend this much money on this car? You don't want to ask. Do I want to spend this much money buying this many clothes or this types of clothes? Do I want to spend this much money shopping here? We never want to ask. He never asks, what can I do to give more money? What can I do to invest more into God's kingdom? We never want to ask. Are you asking or are you blinded to it? Are you asking or are you blinded to it about your lifestyle? I mean, really. You know how screwy this is? So last night, right, I'm on the internet because Jenny and I are taking off for about a week on vacation. We're leaving next Sunday and going to San Francisco. I got a speaking gig and but spending a week of vacation. So I'm on, I'm on the internet looking for rental cars, right? This is how it works. <laughs> rental cars, right? So, so Jenny goes, so what kind of car are you getting, Peter? I said, oh, I'm looking at some SUVs, you know, full size. <laughs> Bells and whistles for a rental car. Stupid idiot, right? <laughs> and Jenny, my wife, goes, Peter, just get a minivan. You know, a minivan. And to which I said, <gasps> Honestly, you know, the thought went through my mind was, this is so stupid. I said, I will never be caught dead in a minivan. <laughs> And of course, I look it up, right? Sidestep. And of course, the price comes, the sidestep is like all these. So price comes up, right? And guess what the stupid, cheapest car is? It is a, a minivan, right? For like 35 bucks a day, which is real good, you know? And the next SUV is like $79, like good $40, $50 more expensive per day than a minivan. A stupid minivan has to be so cheap, right? So I sat there, and I actually struggled, you guys. I actually struggled. I said, you know, it's $40 a day. That's three, four, four. No, whatever, you know. I actually struggled. And I'm sitting there, like, you know, with my mouse. I'm going. And I thought about, and I thought about us. I thought, look, I thought about us. Here's the thing, you guys. You will never, ever hear me stand up here and say, you can't buy that car. You can't buy that house. You'll never hear me say that. I'll never say that. But here is what I will say. And the question that I will ask you, that is this. Who are you accountable to? Because here's the deal. You don't have what it takes within you to know what the right decision is. You're blind. 
So if you sit there and go, well, I think if it was up to me, I would have gotten that $100 a day full-size SUV that's going to take up like, you know, 15 gallons per mile or miles per gallon, you know. But my wife on the other room says, don't be a sinner. <laughs> she didn't say that. My wife on the other line, my wife on the other, she said this. She goes, Peter, do we really need that? And we'll just check check. One person check. Here's the thing. Do you know why we don't want to be accountable people? Because the reality is when we're standing at the, at the shop, we bought all those clothes. You and I don't even want to ask ourselves, do I need this? So we're going to get in the group of people who are going to ask us? Are you crazy? We don't even want to ask ourselves, let alone have other people ask us. You feeling uncomfortable yet? Just a little bit? Will you come back next week? Please make sure you come back because I get a little bit, little bit nastier actually next week. No, I don't. Next week's a little bit more gracious, a little bit more affirming. Here's what this means. Is there anyone in this room that would dare say today, I can't do any better. I can't give more. I can't live any simpler. Is there any one of us living in Chicago in the United States of America making $40,000 average a year, which puts us in the 97th percentile of the entire world. Is there any one of us that would dare say, I I can't live anything, I can't give anymore. Well, you come and talk to me after the service if you think you can. Because I've got plenty of ways you could simplify your lifestyle. Plenty of places you can give. Okay, you know what, guys? Let's get real here. What does this mean? Here's what this means. This means that one of the most practical, tangible ways for us to be free from the enslavement of greed and materialism is to be radically generous. It all makes sense. What do I mean? Give away that thing that is constantly tempting you to invest in that idol of yours. Give it. Give it. Generously, radically. Do you know why we're not experiencing the power of God in our lives? We think, well, radical generosity. Do you know why radical generosity is connected to experiencing the power of God in our lives? The reason why we're not experiencing the power of God in our lives is because there's another God that's taking first place. That our money and our resources are funding security, significance, importance. So you want to experience the power of God? Yes, I want to experience the power of God. You don't have to read your Bible, although that's a good thing. You don't have to pray 10 hours, although that's a good thing. The first place, give radically. Say it in a very tangible way. God is first place in my life. Nothing else. The Bible says the minimum radical standard, and I'm going to talk about this more next week, is the tithe. Tithe, which is a tenth. And God actually said to the Israelites that you are to give the 10% of your first fruits. Do you know what the first fruits was? First fruits was the choicest and the best of the crops. This is an agriculture community, remember. You know why that's important? Because the people could have sold the first fruits for a higher price. And yet, God says, I want you to take that that you could sell for a higher price and give that to me. I always get people that come and say, that's an Old Testament thing. Why do we do the Old Testament? I once heard a story about a pastor. A guy came to him and said, are you a grace church or are you a legalistic law church? It was a trap. And the pastor said, well, what do you think? And the guy said, well, I think you're a grace church. You know, New Community seems like a nice group of folks. It's a grace church. To which the pastor said, actually, we are a grace church. So he said, I'm glad because, you know, I was afraid that you were going to be this law, legalistic church that would, like, tell people they had to tithe. This pastor said, no, actually, we're a grace church. See, the Old Testament law says, do not murder. But the New Testament, full of grace, says, hey, you don't even have to have hatred in your heart. You could love your enemies. The Old Testament law says, do not commit adultery. Well, New Testament grace says, you don't even have to have lust in your eyes or your hearts for another. So yeah, the Old Testament says, you have to tie 10%. But the New Testament says, you could tie 10, 20, 30, 40, 50%. I wouldn't want to stop you from experiencing grace, you know? To which the guy apparently said, oh. Which is a very theological response, by the way. Oh. Okay, guys. um, Look. I'm going to talk a little bit more about 10%, but here's what I want you to do if you've already gotten it. Some of you guys don't even need to hear this teaching on tithing because you know in your heart of hearts that you need to do it, and you haven't in a while. 
Tithing is not a fast, you know, and hard rule where if you don't do it, you're in sin. No. Tithing is something that the Bible says reach for. Get there. And some of you guys, you have tons of credit card debt. You have tons of school loans. You have mortgage payments, so on and so forth. And you're not able to give 10% right now, like legitimately. And the Bible says, hey, commit to giving something, but be consistent in giving that. And I talk about this next week. Do you know what I think frustrates God more than anything? When the time for offering comes, you know? <laughs> You know, college students. Time for offering comes. It's not even in my mind, right? And when it comes, you're like, oh, shoot. You know what God says? God just goes, you know what? Keep it. Keep it. Keep it. Because here's the thing. Your preparation and mentality about why you give is just as important as what you actually do. Really. Really. You know? 10%. And think about it this way. If you believe what I said last week about God owning everything, it's a phenomenal deal. What kind of an investor says, wow, you've made a lot of money for me. You get to keep 90% of that and just give me 10%. What kind of a real, can you imagine working with somebody, you know, a real, if you're a realtor working with the homeowner, you sell the house and they go, you know what, you get to keep 90% of the sales of the house. You only give me 10%. That's a phenomenal deal. And yes, that's what God says. Okay, so how do we get there? How do we get there? Natalie, you can come on up. We're finishing up. How do we get there, you guys? Okay? How do we get to the point of even giving a percentage or tenth? How do we get there? Look, everybody, can I just, this is not, it's not an issue, just money. It's not just money. It's never just money. If you didn't hear anything that I said today, you need to hear this. It's not just money because your money is about significance. Your money is about what you find worth in. Your money is about your value. Your money is about what you find your affirmation. And that's what this is about. Your money and your hearts go together. And here's the, here's the thing you and I have to wrap our brains around. Ready? Every single one of us, we have a treasure. There's nobody, there's not a single person in us that doesn't say, I don't have something I treasure. Every single one of us in this room has something that's precious to us. Money, career, belongings, romance, relationships, whatever it is. There's something that we look to and say, that's my treasure. That's my treasure. That's what I look to for validation and affirmation. Every single one of us, success, status. And the truth about treasure in the world is this. The truth about treasure is that treasure says to us, you got to die for me. That treasure says, you got to pay for me. That treasure says, you got to spend enormous amount of energy, enormous amount of resources, enormous amount of everything that you have, even your life, in order to procure it. That's what every single treasure says. Every single treasure. Now, why did Jesus die for us? Follow me. Why did Jesus die for us? Why does Jesus go to the cross? Do you know? Put into this context. Do you realize that Jesus found you and I to be his treasure? All of us would give anything. We would go to great lengths to get that treasure, even die for it. And the only way to look at the Bible and understand Jesus and treasure is he looks at you and me and says, you're my treasure. You're worth dying for. You're worth giving my life for. You're worth me leaving my status as a God. You're worth leaving my security as God. You're worth me being stripped of everything that I have as God. Why? Because you and I are his treasure. Is that incredible? He says, you and I are his treasure. And he says, I will go to great lengths. He says, there's nothing not losing to get you for. There's nothing. There's nothing. First Peter 2.9, you are God's treasured possession. And until you and I understand that, Money will always be our significance. Money will always be our value. Money will always be the idol in our lives. But when he is your security, when he is your treasure, when you are captured by the beauty of Jesus, money will just be money. And you'll be free. You'll be free. I got an email and the check from a young man, he's 29 years old. One of the people that helped start this church. In other words, he's a lot like where you're at. 
He wrote a check for $10,000 for our building fund. To which you and I go, <gasps> the, the thing is, he started tithing when he was making $20,000 and he just kept faithful. A little bit more, a little bit more, every step of the way. This is what he wrote. First of all, I want to thank God for the work New Community is doing to further his kingdom. In an age of cynicism, New Community brings hope that the church's work does not end with a group of people meeting for church as usual. Instead, the church expands outside the four walls of a building and engages a community in service, development, and reconciliation. Although much of New Community's work is done outside the walls of a church, I realize that the need to have a physical structure to coordinate such an effort. God has been speaking to me about giving generously with no regrets. In these uncertain economic times, I am tempted to hoard until the future is more clear. Nonetheless, with confidence that God has ordered my steps for this time, I'd like to give the enclosed gift for the purpose of developing a permanent home for new community. May God bless the work of his people. You know why he can give like this? He is free. He is free. So God, we come to you today. And Lord, it is a hard, hard message indeed. God, we so desperately need to hear from you today. We so desperately, desperately need to hear from you today. Speak to us and remind us, God, that we are your treasure. That the very thing our soul longs for with our entire being the very things like security, status, romance, things that we long for with our entire beings, God, you give. You satisfy. And church, as the worship team leads us in this song of response, I want to encourage you as we have done throughout this morning to lay down at his feet that which is your idol, that which is your God. We are kicking off this capital campaign. We've reserved seats for about 200 people. About 120 people, a little less, have confirmed. That means we have space for about 80 more. There is free food. It's great free food. It's at Michelle's Ballroom. It would be great if we could fill all the spots, all the seats, so that you could hear about this big thing that we're launching for the city and for the kingdom. So I want to encourage you guys, if you have time, actually, even if you don't have time, will you make time? There are a couple people that are going to be there. Clark, Clark Bauer, he's uh, way in the back. You'll get to meet him. He is actually the architect. Who's, uh, yep. He, he has been a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful person to us, and he is literally doing this um, because he believes in what we're doing. He believes in the mission of this church. Okay? Uh, there are a handful of other folks I want to introduce you to there, so I would love it if you guys can. Hey, we've got uh, maybe one or two more uh, of this sermon series, so again, please do come back. Okay? Don't say, oh, I hated that. Nobody walks out during stewardship singing. I noticed that. Nobody walks out singing, but hopefully you guys will walk on over to the office. See you guys there in about 15, 20 minutes, okay? Have a great week, you guys. Take care.